0: This is a Handshake Agency Podcast.
1: Hi, I'm Steve Bell and welcome to the second episode of Rewind's Trip Back 30 Years to follow the ascent of Daryl Braithwaite's recording of the horses to number one on the Australian Singles Chart and how the song's been embraced by the nation in the intervening years. I highly recommend that if you haven't listened to episode one that you stop here and check that out first as I reckon this episode will make a lot more sense with the first one under your belt. We've heard about how Daryl found the song on a Ricky Lee Jones album midway through the recording sessions for his 1990 solo album Rise and how, despite initial reservations from both his label and the album's producer, Simon Hussey, he managed to tack the horses onto the end of the album sessions with no real expectation other than perhaps shoring up the overall strength of that collection of songs. We learned how Hussey arranged the songs somewhat in line with his prog leanings, and how a series of happy accidents, such as the addition of Margaret Ehrlich and the eventual prominence of her vocals in the mix, all added subtle layers of mystery and intrigue that may in part explain what happened next. We left episode one with Daryl's version of the horses completed and buried towards the back end of the rise track list, And much to the surprise of most involved, it had been selected by Sony as the album's second single. Now's when it starts to get kind of weird. With the Rise album having been released the previous November, The Horses was released as a single and serviced to radio on 28 January 1991, following the lead single title track Rise, a cover of a song by 80s Sydney band The Chosen Few, which had done pretty well without setting the world on fire getting a fair amount of radio airplay and climbing to number 23 on the Australian Singles Chart. The Horses first entered the Singles Chart on February 10, 1991, easing into the top 100 at number 99. Daryl then embarked on a pretty rigorous promo campaign for the single, involving a lot of pressing the flesh with radio DJs and the music press, as well as a lot of meet and greet and signing opportunities with the fans. A big part of the marketing strategy for the horses revolved around the song's soon-to-be-iconic film clip. Filmed on a decidedly thin budget for the time of $45,000 and directed by Grant Matthews, a photographer for publications such as Rolling Stone, who'd also done a lot of photo shoots for album covers and the like, so it was pretty entrenched in the industry. It's essentially a long, sweeping camera shot using both helicopter and a crane down a beautiful beach which a crew member had got up at 2am in the morning to sweep for six hours to give it that pristine feeling. Featuring Daryl in a fashion wolf for the time, get up, going hell for leather, delivering the horses with utmost passion and conviction. Margaret Ehrlich, who was busy coordinating her own career at the time, didn't want to be in the clip, despite the prominence of her vocals in the song's final version. So a model named Gillian Bailey was brought in to lip-sync Margaret's contributions earning herself the nickname Gilly Vanilli in the process. When the film clips started being played on high rotation and radio slowly but surely started coming to the party, the pace finally started picking up for the horses. Here's Daryl.
2: Like with the Edge album and then then the Rise album, it was always uh, a consensus. You know, it was either Simon and I and, um, and then also in conjunction with... Uh, two or three people from from sony music you know trying to decide what oh this one that one oh yeah but and so virtually you'd leave it up to um sony in the end because of i guess their track record of of trying to you know pick out which songs should be here there and and uh, but it was it was basically a consensus you know and sort of we all we all had our view, and so uh, I remember I think when they went, Oh, we're going to go with the horses. Oh, okay, right up. And then, then came the hard work of uh, Oh, we're going to make a video. Oh, okay, okay, good. <laughs> and my god, it was just uh, and and what a video it turned out to be. But it was, uh, I remember they. They, they, they didn't spare anything at all. You know, it was like I think they caught us when, when we were doing gigs in Sydney and they sort of said, okay, on this day then we'll, we'll take you up to Sandbar, a place up just north of Newcastle, shoot the whole thing and then get you back in time for the gig at St George Leagues Club.
1: <laughs> and I
2: thought, oh, great, okay, that'll be good. My God! I ended up back to the Leaves Club. They flew us back in the helicopter, um, and by the time I got backstage, I was burnt with the sun. I was tired, um, but the gig was good. And I told all the boys, you know that. I said, "Oh, you should have seen! I was running, running through the water, and jumping, and singing, and you know, had my jumper tucked into my pants." and <laughs> all this stuff but it it was it was a great time it really was
1: well it's such an iconic clip it's incredible really and it was done for what 45 grand which is really cheap for the time it's just become part of the culture almost
2: well it's um yeah i i look at it and i i I, uh, i i really like it i think it's just and it's got you know it's set back then 30 years ago and um, as my son Oscar would say, he said, "Dad, that that jump when you do the jump, that's what my friends <laughs> that's what my friends like the most." I went, "Oh really?" <laughs> I said, "The jump." He said, "Yeah, the jump. They they freeze it, you know, and they oh yeah, heck, what's that?" I go, "Okay." So who knows? I mean, it's um, I I really liked it. I thought it was great, and I can still watch it. Even now, and uh, and think, oh God, look at that, and look at that jumper tucked into those pants.
3: <laughs> I
1: was, I was going to say, I read somewhere that even your wardrobe in the clip was a bit of a subtle rebranding. They were trying to market you a bit differently <laughs> than the rock and roller.
2: Well, <clears> they, <throat> I I guess they, uh, and and they did it all very uh, subtly. I think you'd call it. Um, because I think they they get you into something to wear and you think, hmm, okay. Uh, and then they probably have a pretty wardrobe girl come up and say, oh, Daryl, you look really <laughs> good, really good in that. And so you sucked in and go, oh, really? Okay, cool. Yeah, okay. But no, I guess they, uh, they had some sort of look they were going for and, um, yeah, I, well, it didn't bother me. I mean, it's, you know, even through all the sherbet period, we wore things that we, we sort of look back now and go, oh, my God, how did you wear that? But uh, it, just <laughs> seemed to be, it just seemed to be part of it, you know, back then. It was, it was secondary, really was.
1: From the label perspective, on the other hand, A&R guru Peter Carpin recalls the selection of the horses as the second single from Rise as being much more cut and dry.
0: I mean, when you live with an album, you play it over and over again while it's being recorded, and um, to me, it was definitely a standout. Uh, Daryl was very keen to go with Rise, the title track, as the first single, and you don't normally go with a, what, a down-tempo sort of ballady song as a first single anyway. So um, it fell into line, but we, it, it came out as the second single because we, we loved it at Sony. We were... We were passionate about it and um, it didn't take long for everyone to get on board. We were really enthusiastic about it and I think um, the video for the song really kicked in with everybody at Sony and the promo team, and the marketing team, everybody thought we had something really special.
1: By March 1, the horses had cracked the top 50 and climbed to number 38 Miff Warhurst attesting that the horses film clip was definitely making an impact among Australian music fans. Look,
4: it, it was um it was also pretty cheesy too, and I think I think Daryl's the first person to tell you that. You know, like when you listen to it now, it's like, oh wow, this is this is classic, easy listening um, with horses, especially like it's beautifully put together in in that sense. It's quite it's quite perfect in that sense, the sound of it and everything. So that went beautifully with my. Um, sort of late eighties, early nineties outfits and the whole look. Like Daryl Daryl was just part of my whole look at that point. You know, like his 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 look in the film clip with the chinos pulled up and the and the top tucked in and the belt and like I think I had that. I was wearing exactly the same thing. I just yeah, I think I moulded myself. <laughs> or at least or the other girl in the film clip. I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> I was hardly the girl in the film clip, though. She was a gorgeous model. But, you know, Daryl Darry- was my fashion inspo, I guess.
1: That was pretty omnipresent, that clip, wasn't it? It was everywhere.
4: Oh, it was unbelievable. Um, it really was. Uh, I think because of Daryl, and I've been trying to think about what it is about Daryl Braithwaite that that has allowed him to connect over so many decades with so many people, and it's, it's that you either want to be Daryl or you want to be around Daryl, I think. He's got that. I don't know, Just, it's not nice guy. He doesn't come across as a nice guy, but he, see, he just seems to come across as as a guy you'd like to hang out with, I think. Like guys would want to hang out with him. And, and, and I think especially when around the time of the horses, a lot of women connected to that song as well. And, I mean, to be honest, I don't even really know what it means. I've been looking at the lyrics and I'm going, I don't really know what it means, but it's just a feeling, just a vibe that I think people connected to. And he crosses kind of – he was the artist that that guys could like and girls could like at the same time, I think. And that's just something about Daryl's personality, I think.
1: By April 5, the horses had finally cracked the top ten, spending two weeks at number eight, then spending a week at number five, two more weeks at number three, a tantalising week at number two, before finally reaching the coveted number one spot on May 24, 1991, where it would stay for two weeks before starting the inevitable slide towards chart obscurity. Don't forget that Rise had come out the previous November, and The Horses was released as a single in January, so that is a really long time to hit top spot, especially for a song that was soon to be so beloved by the whole country. Looking back, you sort of would have expected it to have taken off immediately and jumped to number one with a bullet, rather than its actual slow burn success. All the hard work had paid off, as Daryl remembers.
2: I, I think it, it probably, I, I've never found out of um, off Sony why, or, you know, if they were ever in doubt that it that it wasn't going to work. But it, it did. As you said, it took I think something like eight weeks or more to get mm. to the top place. But, uh, my God, they, they worked it and and they worked me but i mean it was uh they they had a strategy that you know took in uh every conceivable outlet that you could that you could manage within reason you know the like doing as you said pressing the flesh and this and in-store appearances and oh god i can remember them you know <laughs> and and i guess that sort of thing um it it works, you know. In the end, it helps, and then radio as well.
1: I guess playing it,
2: and but it, it's slightly different from, slightly different from how they go about it now. I guess.
1: Even Simon Hussey, the arranger producer, so integral to the horse's success, is at a loss to explain this slow rise up the charts.
5: Rise had been out, and then I did remember hearing the horses on the radio and think, oh, okay, that that that's out and that's good, and. It didn't really do anything. I think it kind of it it kind of hovered around the, in the top forty for you know six or ten weeks or something, and then for some reason it just it just took off. And I don't know. So Daryl would have been obviously out and about touring, doing gigs and stuff. But that great unknown is to um, r- r- the radio level may have also picked up a little bit. The film clip was out, obviously. Um, and then, of course, with Rage and where people were seeing the film clip, there's no internet, obviously, so people couldn't stream it. It had to be watched on TV. So there was that engagement only, and radio engagement only, and the live performance. So they're the only three mediums where people would have been able to see the song or hear the song. Um, so I don't know what happened. I really don't know what happened, but it just, for some reason, it really, really took off. Um, but it is an unusual thing, you're right, for a song to kind of be released and hover around the 30s or something and then for some reason just really click and then just stay up there for six weeks or whatever it was at number one.
1: And it ended up being the fifth highest-selling song in Australia that year. So it did become a massive song. But even at that point, I, I don't remember thinking it was any different to you know, One Summer or you know, As the yeah. Days Go By or even – it was just another – one of the hit singles yeah something's yep. happened since hasn't it which is i guess yeah. why we're doing this podcast
5: yeah yeah it has i mean it, it's it's um i I probably i mean i think when you um produce an album and you um go through the whole thing of uh the pre-production which is you know you go through at least six months of finding songs arranging them, working out. Then you've got to book studio time, musicians, all that sort of stuff. It's a long journey. And usually when you finish making an album, you never listen to it again. Um, so after that all kind of died down and then the resurgence of it probably didn't happen until, well, one of the classic examples of the resurgence was the Hawthorne Football Club um, in the AFL where they took it on during their their heyday where they were having three grand final wins in a row and, was it 2013, 2014,
3: 2015? Be, horses, yeah, yeah. Sky, walk, walk, walk,
5: um, my son, who's um, also he's 27, so he's kind of part of that demographic which still love it. He's a journalist and he was working for them um, as their online journalist and he's also a musician and a writer. And they were, they were, after every win, they were singing it as their, they did the Hawthorne Football Club song, but after every win, they'd sing the horses and the coach would, would sing it with them. And um, even I think the last grand final, the, the 2015 grand final, Daryl got on stage at there with the coach, and singing with the coach and the team <laughs> in front of the, in the crowd. But it's, it's transcending generations into their 20s. So I'm, I'm finding that the feedback I get that it gets played at weddings, it gets played at funerals, it gets played um, at any kind of event because it's so ambiguous, the meaning of the words, because of, I guess, um, little darling way up in the sky, so there's, um, there's a pos- the positivity aspect of it can relate to the passing of somebody, a loved one in a funeral, the birth of a new child or the child or your love for a child, the wedding of, you know, so there's a positive of um, the love for a partner. So I think the fact that the lyrics are open to interpretation to the individual has made it totally universal and the the young the young generations I was in hospital in 2017 with a kidney thing and um, somebody had recognised um, my name through the horses and said oh were you the, the person involved with the horses and she would have been 22 or <laughs> like that I said oh yeah yeah, sorry <laughs> I apologise because uh, but. Um, she said, oh, I'm getting married to that song next year. So, wedding. So, it was just amazing that that, that age group. Um, and you do ask them, you know, what is it that you love about it? And they said, Oh, I don't know. We just love it. It's just, and, and you know, at, at, at live, they just seem to embrace it. Like, um, it's, it's, it's like Daryl's this disciple on stage. And they're the they're the brethren, the followers. It's incredible it's uh, it's, it's it's. I think it's the incredible healing power of positivity for people that it must be a great tonic for psychologically for people to be that ensconced <laughs> in that song. so I didn't get it at the time.
1: <laughs> the horses wasn't Daryl Braithwaite's first number one single. way back in nineteen seventy four, his first ever solo release away from sherbet a cover of Italian singer-songwriter Umberto Bindi's You're My World, went to number one and stayed there for three weeks after Daryl performed it on the very first episode of Countdown. Sherbert also had a couple of chart-toppers amongst their steady stream of 70s hit singles, namely Summer Love in 1974 and How's That in 1976, the latter of which also went to top spot in New Zealand. But to Daryl, reclaiming the top spot well over a decade after last reaching the summit... Made the achievement feel even more special than usual.
2: I, I think it did. I, I think uh, I think it did because of the fact that when Edge came out, I sort of really wanted to, uh, you know, if it was going to work or in, in any in in any situation, I thought, well, I, I want to do this without. Uh, relying on, say sherbet as a crutch. So what, what I did, I guess uh, for the first six months or maybe a year or more was I, I didn't play any sherbet material at all. So it was uh, like the Edge album did what it did, and I and I felt obviously really proud about it. But then when the horses came out as a single. Uh, The fact was that I loved the song and I think it was really uh, fulfilling to hear people talk about the song, how much they liked it and then to see it, I guess, to see it grow um, in stature on on the charts um, and then finally get to number one, you know, and it's still... I, I find that it was more significant, say the last ten or fifteen years, of the horses, has has mm-hmm. been a. Uh, I think it's been more substantial to me the effect of what the horses has done over the last fifteen years than the first fifteen. And oh, our, yeah. only because it it had achieved something when it came out, obviously, but it it's what it's done over that last decade and a half. It's just,
1: you know, it's quite extraordinary. It is, because at the time, I mean, it was huge, but it didn't seem much different as the days go by or one summer or a rise. You know, it was a string of hits, and it just seemed yeah. like another one at the time. But then, yeah, like you said, over time, it's just taken on this import that's really hard to put your finger on.
2: Well, it, and, it, and it's not as though... Um, I haven't gone out there with the the intention of, you know, trying to super sell it or anything like that. We've just, the band and I have just played it. Um, And it's as I said to you before that a lot of the tipping points like the Hamish and Andy, uh, maybe Triple J, um, different obscure sort of things where people have picked up on it and you think, oh, it's really uh, strange, and then even as late as the uh, the Falls Festival, people, you know, having us on there to play. And I know, talking to the guy that ran that um, in Perth when we'd finished the Falls Festival over there, he he said, "No, well, well, we took we took a chance on it. I believe that it would work to have a." Heritage Act on, and I think we were under the first Heritage Act that they've ever had, and uh, and it it ended up working, you know, because I think they had Toto the next year, and then John Farnham, I think last uh, not last year or the year before, and uh, but yeah, that that those those tipping points for the for the horses have been, I, I reckon there's been at least half a dozen that I can recall.
1: Even as recently as last year, Daryl received a fair bit of unexpected blowback when he performed The Horses on the Voice Australia's finale with winner Chris Sebastian, and sections of the Australian public seemed shocked, even betrayed, to discover that Daryl hadn't written his signature hit. Which is strange, given that he'd never even vaguely intimated that he'd written the song, and always seemed to go out of his way to give Jones and Becker their fair dues. Plus, going back to the Sherbet days, most of the songs even the hits, were either covers or penned by bandmates such as Garth Porter and Clive Shakespeare. Daryl definitely knows his way around a song. He's got co-writing credits on numerous sherbet songs and he wrote Edge's single One Summer on his Lonesome and that was a top ten hit, not just here but in Sweden and Norway as well. It's just that he really likes reinterpreting other people's songs and making them his own.
2: I do. I've had, I've had psychological problems <laughs> over the years uh, of beating myself up thinking, okay, the the next album or whatever um, I'll do will be, you know, fully written by me or co-written with someone else and all that. But uh, I I think either the laziness comes into it and, um, and I do remember uh, talking just when we were doing Edge, I remember speaking to a friend of uh, my wife's family, and that, that was John Olson, the the artist, the painter. And uh, this was up at Mount Macedon, and I was just chatting away to him, and uh, we were talking about music and all that, and uh, and he actually said, "Darrell, you know," because I asked him about that that specific thing of. I feel bad or incomplete because I can't, I can't push myself into writing. Um, I don't don't gravitate to it as much as say performing live. And he said, well, you know, look at it this way, that you're a really good interpreter of people's songs, you Mm. know, and that's what you've got to, maybe that's what you've got to live with, you know, that's your lot. And I thought, oh, okay. So, I I guess that's um. That's it. Over the years, you know that I've, I've done quite a, well, so many covers of, of people's songs, and uh, I guess in some cases made them, you know, made them my own, or I I feel that anyway. But, and I guess of 100%. course we, well, it, but it it uh, it sometimes gets annoying. It's. Uh, you know, when people say, "Oh, why don't you write? Why don't you write?" and I go, "Well, I, like, yeah, I'm lazy, <laughs> or whatever it is. It's just because I do. I mean, during COVID last year, sat sat here in this room and uh, and persevered for um, you know like day after day, and I don't know. It's just my attention span. You know, is there maybe as good for about an hour, and then I'll go, yeah, that's not working. Okay." I'll go outside and uh have a look at the have a look at the garden or something.
3: <laughs> so
2: I, I I don't have that that perseverance I think that that uh,
1: songwriters need to have. Oh, like you say, interpreting songs is a huge skill in its own right, and you've had so many hits, I think you've got runs on the board.
2: <laughs> oh you can you yeah, but it's a, it's still a um uh, it's still a thing. Uh that irks me a little bit, I guess it's, uh, and, and, and I, and of course I do look back sometimes and think, okay, well you did, you did one summer, why can't, you know, and, and I guess a few other things in conjunction with other writers, it, it's sort of, uh, I beat myself up, beat myself up a little bit, but then again, I think uh, uh, I, I like that avenue that I've gone in for, for some reason. It's, it's like at the moment we're doing a cover of uh, the 1975, If You're Too yeah, Shy. Yeah. And and the only reason we're doing that is because I a friend of mine from England put me onto them about six months ago or whatever and I had listened to their album. I thought, my God, how eclectic are they? They just go from this to that. But this uh, If You're Too Shy is sort of like, I think it's them rebelling against sort of in a way against pop tunes. It's weird. It's uh, because they don't, it's the the one track that stands out as being different from all their other material on this album, their latest album. But we we play it and now I'm getting (laughs) accused by people of being, why are you doing that song? It's got, why do you want girls to take off their clothes and stuff? Oh my God. I thought, so, but anyway, it's, um, It's just, again, one of those things that I heard the song and I thought, I reckon that would be, you know, we could do a good job of it. So we started to play that.
1: We've already touched upon the importance of the horses to Daryl's audience in a live setting, but it's still quite random to discover that at the height of the song's live popularity, he and the band were jamming it out to the point that it often reached an incredible 17 minutes in length.
2: That's a lot of, God, oh my, that'd that'd be James (laughs) Wayne probably, but. No, we have, we have. I think we have done a version that's been around 15, 17 minutes. But he, uh, he, James Rain, when I when I was having, um, I was in hospital about uh, five years ago. He he brought in, or he came in to see us, and uh, his daughter Molly had actually found or con- made up an egg timer with the amount of sound sand in it. That ran for about 17 minutes. And he gave it to me while I was in hospital. And he said, Oh, this is from Molly. And it runs exactly the, the longest horses you've ever done, 17 minutes of, of shame. That's what he calls it, shameless. And, uh, but he, he, he's, I like James. I mean, that's, we're, we're very good friends. And he, uh, he, di- he did, he uh, did, Back then, he'd go, it's just shameless how you drag it out. And and I I said, yeah, but you should do it to one of your, like, you know, the boys light up or something. Just, just <laughs> give it a go, you know.
1: And uh, Reckless, 20
2: minutes. Oh, oh, my God. But no, it, we've cut it down <laughs> now to uh, the horses down to about, I think, five, five and a bit. So people get, I think, maybe one. Two choruses and that's it. So it's you know, (laughs) and it it seems it seems to be fine that that length, you know, any longer. And I think, um,
1: yeah, I don't know. (laughs) You mentioned in passing in the interview once that there was one gig you didn't play it, and that didn't end very well. Was it? Was there actually a gig where you didn't play it?
2: Ended in tears Uh, (laughs) over at Yarraville. Yarraville Workers Club or RSL, and uh, we, we played, played there. We, uh, we, we, must, we did finish up with one summer, then walked off and the dressing room was like, oh, maybe 25, 30 metres away down a corridor and then left and then right and then you're there. So you can't hear the stage. And I, I'm, we got back there and I've gone to the boys, hang on, let's listen to see if they, hopefully they'll want us back. Couldn't hear. And so then we decided, oh, okay, God, that's strange, not playing the horses. And then people started coming into the dressing room and, go, and swearing and, you know, oh, you're yes, <laughs> fucked. You're not coming back. What? Like, couldn't you hear. I said, no, I said we couldn't hear you. And then some of my boys turned like rats on a sinking ship and said, "Oh no, it's got nothing to do with us." Says Daryl. <laughs> 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 and and they um, a couple of them said, "I've followed you for since sherbet, and I'm not gonna, I'm gonna rip up all my sherbet albums as well." So. Yeah, so it got it got a bit nasty, and uh, <laughs> and we didn't play it. But I mean, we couldn't go back on then. But yeah, that was uh, an unintentional mistake. Uh, and and every other time now, we have played it.
1: We tried speaking to Ricky Lee Jones to gauge her feelings about the runaway success of the horses down under, but she's putting the finishing touches on her memoirs, so politely declined. Funnily enough, I actually interviewed her back in 2015 when she was doing promo for her The Other Side of Desire album and I talked about it with her then but sadly I've done thousands of interviews and I can't actually find the recording of that chat. It'll be on a hard drive somewhere. Now that part of the chat didn't make the final cut of the interview so all I remember is that she was pleasantly surprised about the journey that her song had been on down in Australia and was glad that the horses meant so much to people. It must be strange for her, given that she's on record explaining that the song is about the birth of her daughter Charlotte in 1988, the year before the original version of the song was released, with the horse imagery inspired by a recurring dream she had as a child about catching a horse that had escaped from a cowboy. The pair actually had the chance to sing the horses together when Ricky Lee Jones was in Australia back in 2017 and they shared a rendition during a show at Melbourne Recital Centre, an experience Daryl remembers fondly, Although there was a slight challenge meshing the two arrangements together.
2: Yeah, it was uh, it was a thrill. I mean it was a thrill to meet her and, and to have a chat and uh and then to to sing it with her on stage and as you said we did her version which was uh which is a bit more jazzy a bit more laid back but um i tried i tried to sing my pop version the verse as close to how we recorded it so that i didn't want to bugger up her (laughs) Her song, and she did look at me and laughed, you know, because it was, it was, it was uh, obviously different to how she, um, how she performs her version of it, you know.
1: It's so five. surreal for her with with one oh. of her songs that's just the album track in a lot of ways in
2: this national anthem almost there it is it's um james rain saw her up at the, the Byron Blues Festival maybe uh it would have been when she came out here and I, I met her so it'd be about three four years ago and uh he said that she she did the horses oh maybe about five fifth or sixth song, something like that. And uh, she went to go into the chorus and the people just sang, the whole crowd, and she stopped. And Jane said she was just <laughs> flabbergasted. She could not believe, you know, that they, uh, that they liked it so much and that they knew it. But I think she did tell me that <laughs> uh, at her gigs she sometimes has to, when she's playing in Australia, she has to tell them that this is the song that I wrote, not that guy. He didn't write it, you know, <laughs> meaning myself. <laughs> but she has to explain so they don't think she's doing a cover of um, <laughs> uh, of the Daryl Braithwaite version.
1: Miff Warhurst identifies some other fiduciary positives Ricky Lee Jones beyond the surreal fact that one of her album tracks has essentially been co-opted by an entire country
4: the fact that Daryl heard it and went this is going to be great we're going to make it sound like um you know like one summer had been a huge hit i think at that stage and and he knew that he could make it sound like that and it would be a hit and it was a hit i mean it wasn't and it wasn't a, a sort of it was number 1 but not not for that long if i remember correctly it, but it's its enduring appeal has rendered it like a, an absolute classic. You know, and Ricky Lee Jones must be just so thankful because she just back up that wheelbarrow and the royalties just pour the royalties in. Um and, and Daryl too, you know, I hope I hope he's managed to reap the rewards of that song because, you know, it's a hard business, this one, the music business and, and any kind of Enduring success um, for established artists, I think, is is really wonderful, especially in this country. And I think sometimes, you know, we're, we're a bit, you know, or um, I only like, you know, people say they only liked an artist at a certain time; and they didn't like their later stuff, or you know, and people quite often do that. But I think success in any form for Australian artists is is amazing and and should be celebrated.
1: Simon Hussey would win the Producer of the Year ARIA Award at the 1992 ARIAs. Not just for his work on Rise, he'd also helmed albums by Craig McLaughlin and James Rain in that period, and it was a cumulative award. But you'd have to imagine that the runaway success of The Horses played a pretty big part in him saluting at the post.
5: I actually hadn't realised that, you told me. I didn't equate The Horses and the Ari (laughs) Awards. But yeah, that actually probably actually makes it more special, to be honest. Um, um, And again, it was the... Um, the simplicity of the song and the great musicians we had. Um, you know, we didn't even have a bass player. Actually, the funny thing about the horses too, because it wasn't the band as such, we have got John Watson in. Um, Jeff Scott played um, some beautiful um, bluesy little guitar licks and played the acoustic and the chorus. And, but um, um, Andy Sichon was the original bass player, but he'd gone back home. Um, jeff had gone back to la so we had to get um, a bass player and a guy called jeremy Olsop who played the bass on the horses which he did a fantastic job as well so um yeah the i think i think the the performances of the band of the band track of that song is very classy and tasteful um uh, so I think holistically Daryl's vocalist is just pristine and and heartfelt and, and I think the performances of the band are, are, are really great really great I think the musicianship is is um, if you kind of look deep down into the the what's being played there's some there's some really nice moments in there so yeah Wonderful. great band.
1: I, I love it about this story just how many sliding doors moments there are. Like it's become this massive thing and it could nearly have not happened at about five different stages. <laughs> totally. Yeah,
5: totally. And the other thing is the, um, the the I, I could have put the kibosh on it. I, I mean, I could have said to Daryl, I just don't like this. And I don't, I mean, it's not meant to be um, uh, saying that at the at the time that, um I, you know because i was i don't like to think i'm a dictator or anything of like that but i know we're in the stage where we had enough songs but yeah it could have been one of those things where i could have talked him out of it but obviously at the time i thought well we can if we can steer it into um um because they are quite different and our version is very simple more daryl rock and i think that's you can you can hear that it's got to fit in with with the rest of it um, the Margaret thing would not have happened if I hadn't had the conversation with my wife going home, because uh, it probably would have got somebody else. Um, um, even though you know, Mar- we were playing Margaret's album to death, so that was just, as I said, the purely purely a chance thing. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of things that um, that could have could have not happened, and I, I, the resurgence is probably the the Curious one that probably happened, I guess, around 2000, then the 2010s. I guess it made its, made its real comeback, I would think, probably. I think the late 2000s, there was probably a bit of a lull, and then it seemed to resurge probably around 2012. I know the peak was around 2013, around that early mid period, it really started to come back, and now it seems to have just kind of settled into that mainstay. So
1: yeah, it just got uh, gradually co-opted by popular culture, didn't it, whether it was TV ads or comedians, and it just popped up everywhere.
5: Yeah, yeah, and there was the, the sporting thing too, and I think with the um, – uh, actually, I saw a funny thing the other day. Somebody sent me a um, – um, oh, it was a, an ad for using hand sanitizer, and um, rub your hands for as long as – how long you can sing the chorus and the horses. <laughs>
3: um,
5: and it was uh, it was on the wall in the in either a bathroom, you know, a restroom or somewhere, but they were using that. Because the, the Heart Foundation uses um, when you're doing CPR, you you press down on somebody's chest for the beat of staying alive. Staying alive. Guess, yeah. <laughs> so this one was wash your hands, wash your hands together for the duration of how long you can sing the chorus of the horses. So I thought that was a funny one. So yeah, yeah, it's interesting because it's it's kind of become like um, uh, like I guess John Farnham's "You're the Voice" was the big anthemic thing, um, and I guess Daryl's got the horses, and they're kind of a, the the similar uh, time frame of their their careers and. Um, both as solo artists, obviously, because we're John and John was so generous with his time obviously because he sang on both Edge and Rise. But um, John's album would come out and we'd follow with a Daryl album and vice versa. And there was a bit of bit of competition. <laughs> um, a bit of and uh, not healthy, healthy rivalry, I think. Yeah. yeah. yeah.
1: Well it had to be if, if John's singing on the yeah, Daryl's album. <laughs> he was
5: great. Yeah, he, he would he would come in and and um, uh, yeah, we did. Well, he didn't do the horses, of course, because the horses came in so much later that um, um, that it just wasn't, Daryl hadn't done the vocal for that yet. So it was, uh, he did higher than hope. He did a great job on that. So, um, which ended up being a single. So, um, but no, it was, uh, it was, it's it, it's funny. I think and just made that album. I'm not too sure which which album goes down as being the the better or the bigger one. But the horse has kind of elevated, Rise into being a huge seller. You know, so it's uh, it's hard to know. Yeah, but, uh, I like the sound of Rise better. It's my favourite sounding. Much, I think it's I like it, the sound of it better in hindsight. Excellent.
3: Yeah. one.
1: Yeah, maybe you can answer this. Um, I keep reading that. Horses never got released as a single in the States, but if you look on Wiki, there's a listing for the B-sides and that. So like, did it actually yeah. come out as a single?
5: Uh, what they did in America, so Higher and Hope was released in America uh, as the single and that got, uh, I think it was 47 on the top 100. So they got a lot of airplay and they, I think they released the Horses as the second single and it didn't do anything, but they released higher than hope as an album in America. And what that was, was kind of a compilation of edge and rise. So, um, so, um, I think whether, whether the record company, um, whether they thought, you know, we'll go with the, because higher than hope was kind quite, quite anthemic and we'll go with horse a second for whatever reason, horses didn't get the traction in america or they didn't radio didn't pick it up so so it did did get released as far as i'm i'm aware but it just didn't do anything but it was on the um album that was released which was called higher than hope so
1: because i guess that leaves us in this bizarre situation where it's this towering piece of popular culture in australia and pretty much unknown it's probably a rickie lee jones song everywhere else essentially
5: that's right. Yeah. And it is it is one of those weird things where and it's it's a bit of a phenomenon with a lot of Australian artists where they haven't broken through over in America and in, for whatever reason. So um and I I I don't think um because the other interesting thing about the horses too was, you know, philosophically, you think, well, is it is it about um love and um nurturing and all that sort of stuff or is it is it did people look at it and think i love horses and <laughs> nature and that sort of stuff cuz you think about is it a, is it a song about horses did people literally think you know is it about the love for horses or so there's so many elements to it um and horse racing so huge in australia which i don't and of course it's been overused with uh, uh all the horse racing especially down in melbourne Um, and Daryl has performed at many, many horses things, So it's been intrinsically linked obviously with those sort of things. Um, But, yeah, it just seems to be, um, uh, and I do have met a lot of few people that dislike it with a passion, a few hairdressers along the way, which is normal. I think for the amount of people that love a song, you're going to get people that dislike it, whether it's through, it's overplayed or whatever, but... uh, but as I said, I think the legacy—it's a legacy with Dowell that'll be there forever. Um, and as, as I said, it's just amazing that he can still go out, given the restrictions that we're under at the moment, and play it live. Um, and people, the generations that you know, kids in their twenties are um, enjoying it and embracing it. So, uh, so yeah, it's I, I, I. I was trying to work out the other day, is it um, what part of the song is the key moment that grabs people, you know, um, is it uh, that's the way it's going to be, little darling, you know, is it way up in the sky, lift you up, lift you up, you know, there's what it what with the human psyche, is there any particular lyric or something that hits somebody, if it's a nerve with somebody, you know, that makes them gravitate to it. Um so it's, uh, well, that's the way it's going to be, little darling. You know, it's that which is the the first opening of the chorus. So, because usually there's always a hook in a song, isn't there? That, 100%, yeah. that somebody just sings. And then the, the chorus has got kind of a few key, key, key little um, phrases in there that you think, well, maybe it's that one. Maybe it's that one. Maybe it's that one that people gravitate to. So, um, I Don't know. I think if we all had the the formula, I think in the 80s and the 90s when Nirvana came in and everything changed, everybody became a grunge band in the 80s. Everybody became, you know, with drum machines, everybody kind of followed the the 80s sound. Um, and you know, I'm a I've, I'm I've got to put my hand up for that as well. Um, but I don't think anybody's tried to do a copy of the horses, a rip off of the horses when you think about it, you know, everybody's. You can think of a song that somebody's tried to copy. So there's moments in time in music where you think, oh, that's a rip off of that song. It's happening now. Everybody says now, the music you hear now, you can hear, oh, that's just a rip of that song. It's a r- rip off of that song. But I don't think anybody's tried to rip off the horses.
1: It's probably too too high a bar. <laughs>
5: yeah. And even though it's, yeah, it's curious, even though musically it's very a simple song, quarterly-wise, but um Maybe it's too obvious. I don't know. It's uh, amazing to think that um, 30 years ago, um, you know, I'd be talking about a song that, as I said, you walk out of recording an album and it's usually a long haul, long hours. Um, It's a joy to be able to finish it and have a happy artist and a happy record company. And then usually you move on and you never really listen to it again, maybe. (laughs) And to think that uh, after all this time that, um, there's a legacy from it and a whole new generation of uh, keep on rediscovering the song. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm just, I'm always, but most of very happy for Daryl that he can still go out there and perform this song and claim it as his own really. Um, and, uh, and yeah, he deserves all the success you can get with it because he's, I think he's done Ricky Lee Jones very, very, and Walter Becker, of course, the co-writer, very, very proud um, the way he's um, the way he's he's performed it and kept it kept it alive for her. So, we've, um, I believe she'd be fairly bemused by the success it's had over here. So,
1: fantastic.
5: Hopefully, it continues.
1: Daryl's been seeing the horses for thirty years now and spent the last decade at least banging on about it as people try to identify the root cause of its enduring appeal. But even he still finds the whole thing just slightly bizarre.
2: Yeah, the, the one at, at at weddings and, and funerals. Uh, I went to a friend of mine's funeral at Wangaratta, maybe five, six years ago, and uh, it was her favourite song. And I, I've never played it. I've been asked a few times to play it at funerals, and I, I just can't because I find funerals sad enough um, and depressing more often than not. And uh, but she, she had, um, she had someone else play it on guitar at her funeral, and it was just, oh, it was so moving. It was, uh, yeah, well, and I was sitting there in the congregation. It was just. I thought, oh, I, I mean, I can see how it works. It's, it's a song that, you know, it's uh, that re- maybe relates to that, and obviously weddings as well. But it, it's, uh, it's. I don't know. I, I was thinking about it the other day, and I thought, it really is an uplift. It's a song of, it's a song of hope. I think because hmm. I've been trying to work yeah, it out. Yeah. For years, and I think through the imagery of, you know, like way up in the sky and, uh, and the horses itself, the image of a horse is really, um, yeah, it's uplifting.
1: Peter Carpen, the Sony A&R guy behind Daryl's solo, Resurgence, believes that the enduring success of the horses is as much to do with the production and performance of the track as it is the actual song itself.
0: I think people just love to get involved with the song. I think in the in the first place, it was such a great recording. Um, Simon always had great players on the albums he did with Daryl. And, you know, we had people like, well, Tommy Emmanuel actually plays the guitar on the track. And um, Jeremy Allsop, who's well known as a bass player, was the bass player. Um, and... Simon as I said worked with impeccable musicians he put a great team of musicians together so i think you've got a song that still stands up wonderfully it's it you hear it on the radio and it, it it's just perfect sonically and just great production by Simon but as to the essence of the song once people got into singing along with it it's it seemed to take off with all generations and every new generation that comes along loves the song. It it was even played at my son's wedding and the whole wedding started singing. You know, It's one of those songs that is just
1: uplifting.
0: So I don't know, it just gets people in and they want to be part of it.
1: Tying in with what Miff was saying back in episode one about first getting a crush on Daryl when he was a regular guest on Countdown, I've had a half-baked theory for a while that his ubiquitous presence in Aussie lounge rooms back in the day is a part of the puzzle. And while this mightn't explain the love for the horses in particular, Daryl agrees that it probably contributes to his own appeal spanning generations.
2: I I think, by the way, even people say walking past us, um, say even last night down at the beach, like, and it's getting dusk and, Two people walk by and they just go, "Oh, hi, Daryl, how are you going?" And it's like, and that that's happened for years. It's like, yeah. I think they feel as though they know us because of, I guess I've been around for a long, long time. Um, but you do get that feeling of um, uh, a local or something, you know, someone that they can uh, they can. They can say hello to or even talk to, or you know, how you going? And all that. It's um it's quite amazing. It's sort of, you know, I don't know. I look back and I and I think, God, I started off surfing in Kooji and then ended up in a band, and that's it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's been a lot of stuff in there, but it's sort of uh uh it's been amazing. It really has. It's sort of, you know, and it's not, it's still very enjoyable. You know, when the throat's good, it's the best thing in the world.
1: Before I let you go, mate, it, it must be strange though, like you've had this incredible career and so many hits, but then all this focus keeps returning to this one random song from 30 years ago. Yeah, it's...
2: Uh, that strange for you? It, it is. It's... um. Even from my um, my contemporaries, you know, like James, Joe, all of them. I think uh, Russell Morris, you know, Russell, he, he'll have a dig at me sometimes and go, oh, yeah, are you going to do the horses, Daryl? And I go, oh, probably will, <laughs> Russell. I said, are you going to do the real thing? He said, yeah, but it's not like the horses. I go, oh, no, it's very close. Come on. But no, I've been I've been very uh, very fortunate, you know. It's sort of um, and it yeah. I mean that that song uh, has I, I guess opened doors or uh, you know been exciting to think because there are now gigs that come in just where people over the last five years or more where they just want you to come and, uh, yeah, I did three songs, but can you finish with the horses, you know? It's like, so it's quite prominent in people's minds.
1: Is, it, is there any last thoughts on that song, ben? I really love it. I mean,
2: it's, you know, and especially for oh, what it's, I guess what its effect it's had on me and, and also the effect it's had on uh, a lot of people out there, you know. it's uh, And especially, as you were yeah. saying before, I mean, I get quite a lot of emails and, and things from people that have used it at, um, well, at, at weddings, at one lovely one from from London um, la- late last year, and they sent me a little video and a photo of the the. The, the bride and groom, and it was oh. Her face and his face because he didn't know that she'd got a little video from me to play
1: on their wedding day, <laughs>
2: and it was just oh. But I I think that the the moving ones are, the the comments and and letters and stuff you get, of when people have played them at funerals. It's just, uh, and I can understand it, but it's just um. It's sort of, it's a little bit gut-wrenching sometimes.
1: Yeah. You know. I guess we could circle back to that amazing gig I saw at Falls Festival. Though, and that audience connection that you have when that song happens, it's just, it's so rare and so special. I guess it doesn't really matter why it happened. just It's just amazing that no, it sounds.
2: I think it, I think it is, and myself and the band, we all, appreciate it, but uh, it, it is like um, you experience this thing of duende where you just, the hairs on the back of the neck just stand and, and you just feel, uh, uh, oh yeah, I think you just feel at ease and sort of uh, excited, you know, by the whole fact of it. It's just... Um, because they they seem happy, you're happy, and you can't ask for much more. And they they're giving it at a hundred percent, and then you give, so it's it's feeding each other, like what would have happened at Falls. It's um, yeah, extraordinary. I mean, as a friend of mine said, Dara, you um, oh, he deals in misery. He's a barrister, and you deal in happiness. <laughs> And the other good one was that uh when they go to work, no one claps them at the end of the day and and that is quite
1: that is quite true. I'm going to leave the final word on the horses to Miff Warhurst because I think she stumbled upon the only explanation for the song's enduring appeal that really holds water, and that's that there is no explanation it's magic
4: It really is a bizarre story um. Because I mean, Daryl sort of seems himself seems quite baffled by the success of it as well. Like he doesn't really know why it's it's kept going, and you know, young kids are playing it at weddings and parties, and the on Footy Club playing it at the end of the game. Like he's just kind of baffled by. It. <laughs> this people always try and predict what's going to be hit what's going to work the music industry is based on a whole bunch of people telling us what's going to be a a runaway success and yet no one predicted this and they're those little magic pockets that actually tell us more about ourselves and who we are than the others that that seem quite definable you know they, they seem more obvious it's it's those less obvious moments like this one that tell us about who we are and and as as a, I guess as a country to a certain degree, um, then perhaps the the bigger more pop the bigger more obvious successes.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess the only other sort of equivalent one is probably You're the Voice by Farnsley or something like that. Totally,
4: totally. I mean, around they were both at the same time. Like that was, I remember, like they used to play probably both of those songs at nightclubs. Can you imagine playing either of those songs at nightclubs these days? Like, you know, I just wouldn't, I mean, it would go off on a nostalgia factor, but that kind of sound and that kind of beats just not nightclub, you know, but they would it was everywhere, Daryl, <laughs> John Farnham, it's hilarious. It was a good time, I think, for Australian commercial music um, and it was derided by a lot of people at that time. But I think now we're, we're realising, you know, um, for the for the time and for the genre, these were standout standout successful songs.
1: Yeah, I just don't think we're ever really going to get to the bottom of it, to be honest. Why this has resonated with so many people for so long?
4: But I just think that's that's the exact reason why, because you can't you can't predict these things, and that's the magic of music. When something really works and it connects with people, if you could define it. Record companies would have done it a million times over, but no one can, and no one will ever nail it. And and it's that little bit of magic dust that makes it work. And um, and I'm thankful for that because that means you know we can't just churn out hits after hits. You can you can, but things that really resonate and stay with you forever, you can't define um, what it is that makes them as successful as they are because it's just it's the magic of it.
1: So thanks for joining us on this rewind dive into the horses. We mightn't have cracked the code, but it's been a lot of fun. And you didn't think we were going to make you sit through two hours of banging on about the horses without giving you the full glory of Daryl's version to Bring It Home, did you? Play it loud, play it proud.
6: the people that she knows. And if the situation should keep us separated, you know the world won't fall apart. And you will free the beautiful bird that's caught inside your heart.
1: being involved to all at the handshake agency particularly my engineer zig and the producers craig and masty and to all of you for making it this far nice one we've got a heap more rewinds about to drop soon so keep an eye out and if you're digging the podcast please take a minute to rate and review it on your favorite platformer app because apparently that's really important catch you soon
0: Rewind with Steve Bell is a podcast from the Handshake Agency Network. Produced by Craig Traweek and Andrew Musk. Recorded and engineered by Zig Parker. Theme music by Dollar Bar.